Household, Heading for the Promised Land, with the subtitle, Living by the Promises of God. It is the story of the patriarch Abram. Abram means exalted father, whose name was later to be changed to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. And his wife Sarai, meaning princess, whose name was later changed to Sarah, noblewoman or queen. So we have one who's an exalted father that's going to become the father of multitudes. We have a wife who is a princess who is going to become a queen. So just in the change of the names, we are set on a course of marvel. Think about it. Neither of these two people were from any kind of royal line by birth. They were just a married couple whose lives revolved around raising livestock, probably growing a few crops. Principally, they were sheep herders, and they moved from one grazing pasture to another. They lived at the period of time directly after the Tower of Babel. That's the first part of of this text, Genesis 11, after the flood, where mankind refused to disperse throughout the earth as God had commanded. Under the leadership of a man named Nimrod, they attempted to build a tower. These ziggurats have been found in the Mesopotamian Valley. A tower atop of which they inlaid stones depicting the zodiac. Verse 4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Not an accurate translation. Literally in the Hebrew it says, Whose top the heavens. You see what's missing? It's the verb. The top, whose top the heavens. They leave it to the interpreters to supply the verb, if there is going to be one supply. So, they go on, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So this tower represents, does it not, defiance. God said, I want you to scatter over the face of the earth, populate the earth, and they said, well, we're going to build ourselves a city and a tower, so we won't have to do that. Now think about this. No one would build a tower in the plain of Shinar, verse 2, if the goal was to reach high into the heavens to avoid the catastrophe of another flood. Wouldn't you take advantage of a mountain height and build the tower on top of that? But it makes perfect sense if this tower was to become a worship center. Many people of the day, the Egyptians, the Persians, and so on, worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. But it was part and parcel to rejecting God and resisting his command to repopulate the earth after the great flood. So this uh, was going to be an idolatrous worship center. Now these idolaters had one thing going for them in their defiance of God. It's written in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Just think about that. Unification, 
demands common communication. One of the barriers that exists even today in our own country is the large Hispanic and Arab, Arabic populations that do not speak English. You go down here in Dearborn, I keep track with a mission that works down there. That's one of the barriers that they face. Speaking, if you don't know Arabic, you're in trouble because they don't know English, even though English is part of our required citizenship. But it's not being done. People are not learning it. So, here in the plain of Shinar, we have all these descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, chapter 10, verse 1, numbering into the thousands, and they all speak the same language. They can all understand each other. They can all work together. There is no language barrier whatsoever. So the city and the tower, designed to make a name for ourselves, verse 4, and to provide a cohesive environment for unification and solidarity in protest to God's command to disperse, this can proceed <laughs> unscheduled with seemingly no restraints. All the people can speak together, work together, and so on, and away they go. And everyone was agreed on building this project. They were committed to establishing their own religion of idolatry, worship of the stars, and so on, convinced that they could defy God and pull this off. Men always think that they can do that. Sinners always think that they can do that. But you know, it's not so easy to defy God and get away with it. Many are the plans of a man's heart, writes Solomon, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Go ahead and make your plans, Solomon is saying, but you know in the end it's going to be God's purpose that prevails. Verse 6 of our text. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God admits that. Something has to be done here because these guys are just chugging right along. Come, let us, God is speaking within Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so, we, I'm reading scripture, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. End of construction. That's why this city is called Babel. Babylon, short for Babylon. Babel, because there the Lord confused the language. Babel, They sounded like they were babbling. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Verses 6 through 9. Yeah, I mean, the basis for unification was destroyed by God. The population went from speaking one language to speaking many, and so they migrated throughout the earth according to their dialect and languages. Within their language groups, yes, they could and did establish the various cultures that we have throughout the world today. Chinese, Japanese, Russian or Slavic languages, Great Britain, Hispanic, Arabic, and so on and so on, those language sets that divide the nations of the world. But you know what? God got his 
way. God got his way. The plans of the people to build one state religion with one language group was frustrated by God, and these idolaters were forced to comply with God's command reluctantly. But they did comply. It's not easy to resist the will of God. We can praise the Lord for that. This brings us then to the first point in your bulletin outline, the singling out of Abram and Sarai. At this point in history, this is, this is a pivotal point, God turned his attention away from the nations in general to one people group. Not going to work with the nations anymore. I'm going to work with one people group. There's a Hebrew literary device found here which is worth noting. Every time Moses intends to change direction in what he is relating, he uses the Hebrew word toledoth, T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H, toledoth. And it means an account or generation. The term is used 11 times by Moses, all total, and in each incident it becomes a title for what's to follow. For example, Genesis 2.4, we read, This is the account, Toledoth, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. And so he asks the question, well then what follows? What follows is a description <coughs> excuse me, of the early years of our planet's history. What? The creation of the plant life, the animal life, Adam and Eve, the fall into sin. That's what's being discussed under this account, Toledoth. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis. This is the written account of Adam's line. And then you have Adam's genealogy. Chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account of Noah. And then you have Noah's genealogy. Now all these are like, wow, think about this. Starting points. Adam, father of the race. Big flood, wipes out the race. Noah, new father of the race. Okay, so you're following the logic here. He's coming to these new events, new accounts of, new generations of, and what's going on. In chapter 10, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Who are they? They're Noah's sons. Now, look at our text, verse 10. This is the account of Shem. Who's Shem? Well, he is the godly uh, seed who replaced Abel, whom Cain killed. Right? So, Abel's gone. You only have this wicked seed left, Cain. You can read about him in the New Testament, how godless he was. And so God says, okay, Adam and Eve, you're going to have another son. And he na they named him Shem. And he has his own account now, his own line. And look on down further in verse 27 of our text. This is the account of Terah. Terah becoming Abram's father. Okay. So what I'm saying is that this expression, the account of, will not appear for 14 more chapters until you get to chapter 25, verse 12, this is the account of Abram's son, Ishmael, verse 25. This is the account of Abram's son, Isaac. 
You say, so what? Well, listen. What all of this indicates is the use of Toledoth, this is the account of Tira, verse 27, introduces a lengthy section of Genesis which incorporates Abraham and his descendants, get it now, alone. His descendants alone, which indicates that God has turned his attention away from the nations in general to a new spiritual world in the line of Abraham. This is monumental. God is stopping working with the nations. Now, he did this previously in the great flood of Noah's day. We read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. What I am saying here is that the flood reset the clock on humanity by starting over with a new head of the human race, in this case Noah, of whom we just read. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account, Toledoth, of Noah. See, something new has started and it goes on. Okay, but after the flood, we have this whole thing with the Tower of Babel, and we read in chapter 10, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent, within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. But according to verse 1 of our text, they didn't spread out enough. And what is more, they reverted to their old wicked ways of replacing God with idolatry. God had promised Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Genesis 9 Verse 11, verse 15. And what did he do? What did God give Noah as a sign that he would not destroy the earth with another magnanimous flood? The rainbow. So every time you see the rainbow, and God says, when I see the bow, I will remember my covenant with you. Now, there are other floods. God isn't saying there'll never be any floods on earth. He's talking about this great flood, which is another one of these evidences that there was a great flood, because God wasn't talking about some local flood, as the heretics talk about. He was talking about a vast flood that destroyed the earth. Okay, but here we are now in chapter 11, and the people have degenerated into gross idolatry once more. They have built a tower in defiance of worshiping God alone, and God had to disperse them by confounding their common language. So it appears that the nations are destined for an ongoing 
defiance of God and subsequent judgment by God. What then does God do? Answer, he opens another chapter in human history in the calling out and establishment of his people beginning with Abraham and Sarah. In other words, he determines, as he said in the pre-flood people of the earth, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Genesis 6, verse 3. He's basically saying, I've had it up to here with the nations. You know, I'm trying to work with the nations, trying to get them to understand that I'm the creator and the only God there is, and they keep flipping over to idolatry. My spirit will not contend with man forever. You're not going to put up with this. Now, the world might be very happy about this. They say, oh, good. It's about time God left me alone. I don't care to have God running my life anyway. But you know this is very serious. Very serious. It is a mark of God's curse if he abandons you to your own devices. Paul in Romans 1 verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, commentary on Genesis, puts it rather succinctly. Here's what he says. They would not have God, so God would not have them. They gave God up, so God gave them up. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But very, very profound and very revealing. And then he goes on to state, Boyce, when God gives the nations over or up, as the King James has it, we are not to suppose that he gives them over to nothing as if they can just flow on their own and do perfectly well without him. On the contrary, when God gives nations or individuals up, he gives them up to the laws of his own spiritual universe and this means that apart from a grounding in him and the truths revealed in religion, their course will always be downhill. End quote. Wow, that's good. The text on it, or one text on it, would be Romans 1 verse 24, which describes the downhill spiral that began with sexual immorality and ended with a depraved mind that could approve of nothing but wickedness and evil. And Paul writes, God's righteous decree is that those who do such things deserve death. Romans 1, verse 32. It's not improvement if God gives people up. It's not a plus. It's a negative. And this holds true for our text, the apostasy of the nations in rejecting God. Now understand here that the rebellion at Babel is a description of people on the end of the downhill spiral. That's where we're at here. We have been led, we have been taught to believe that mankind started out in superstition with uh, multiple gods, polytheism, and animism, animism is the idea that there are spirits to be found in inanimate objects like the table moves because there's a spirit in it. 
and they talk about this demon world and so on. We've been taught those things. And then man evolved. He evolved into polytheism, many gods. And, and, then, and as the evolution continued, he finally ended up with monotheism, the belief in one God. But you know, this is all patently false. It is patently false. In actuality, it's the direct opposite. Adam and Eve began their spiritual understanding monotheistic. One God, one creator. And it's only after sin entered into the world that degeneration in the concepts of God occurred. That said, monotheism, think about this, monotheism is the basic or ground form of religion. Polytheism is a later and degenerate form expressing itself in the idolatry that devolved and the end product in a corruption of God. The nation which rejects God does not advance upward. It degenerates downward to such a degree that we have in our text, they're building Babylon, which if you know your Bible history and even into the book of Revelation, is symbolic of the city or the people that are opposed to God. So they're building the city and they're building their own religion. And that's the way it's going to go. Down, down, down. Our only hope for humanity is if God steps in by his grace and restarts humanity moving in the upward direction. And it's going to take his grace to do it. Because left to our own devices, it's down, down, down the way we go. So that's what God does. Let me say it this way. It's in your bulletin outline. Abram and Sarai were God's restart button. They were the restart couple. Y'all that have computers know what a restart button is for. If your computer is corrupted with a virus or some such thing, you will be advised to restart the computer so it can go back to its roots and find out where the problem is and so on. Well, Adam and Eve messed up their prime position as the parents of the race. Sin entered the world and death by sin through their disobedience, Romans 5, verse 12. Noah, as the new head of the race after the flood, he didn't fare much better. The Canaanites, which were a descendant of Noah's grandson, became the wicked people who populated Palestine throughout Israel's Old Testament journey. They're always popping their heads up and they're always wicked. So what did God do? I mean, it wasn't exactly like he had someone righteous to work with by this time. Not even Abram, whose father Terah was a practicing idolater, just like all the other pagans living around him. And Abraham was taught this false religion too. Joshua reminded the nation of Israel of this when they finally crossed the Jordan and entered the Palestine area after the death of Moses. Here's what Joshua said. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. Long ago, 
the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river. The river stands for the Euphrates. And worshipped other gods. That's it. That's their history. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, and Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Joshua 24, the first four verses. What is Joshua saying? He says, I want to remind you guys of something. Do you know your history? You all came from a, a bunch of idolaters. And God had to do something of grace and mercy. He took your father Abraham. And that's where you are today because of his grace. As part of their worship, Moses taught the people to acknowledge, and I'm reading him, Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us into hard labor. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 and 6. Aramean, Armenian background is what he's saying. Ezekiel adds this. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field. For on that day you were born, you were despised. He's talking about Israel as an aborted child. Nobody wanted you. Ezekiel 16, verse 3 and 5. You were, you know, an Amorite, Hittite. You were just a bunch of pagan. You were just another pagan baby. What do they do with pagan babies that they don't want? They just abort them, throw them away. And if you read the rest of the text, it's beautiful. This is Ezekiel 16. God comes along, sees this, this uh, aborted baby squirming in its own blood in the field, and he rescues the baby. He adopts the child and makes it into Israel. Now you see, these descriptions are meant to teach us that God's choice of Abram and Sarai had nothing, had nothing whatsoever to do with their own personal righteousness and obedience to God. Oh no, a thousand times no. They were born and reared in the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite cultures, all three pagan, all three opposed to the God of the Bible, just like the descendants of Nimrod and the people at the Tower of Babel. But you know, it would not have been any different had God chosen some other couple from some other culture. All the nations had descended into this wicked idolatry, but God had to start somewhere. So he just reached down from glory and he said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through 
you. That's grace, folks. If we're all in the same bowl of soup, boiling away in judgment from God, he reaches down and he grabs a couple and he says, pulls them out, sits them on solid terra firma. I'm working with you. That's grace. We might protest. Oh, wait a minute. That's not fair. God can't do that. What about all the other couples of that time? Don't they deserve a chance to be blessed by God? Well, that's just the point, brethren. Deserve has nothing to do with it. If you are going to talk deserve, remember Paul's description of sinners who disown God. Now, that's New Testament, but this applies to Abraham's day too. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. I'm reading Paul. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters. Wow. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree... That those who do such things deserve what? Death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans 1, verse 29 through 32. What do they deserve? You want to talk deserve, they deserve death. Now I'm thinking that your sin, like my sin, is listed somewhere in this catalog of vices. So that the only thing you and I deserve from God is condemnation and hell's death. You say, well, no, no wait a minute. There, there just had to be something in Abram and Sarai that, that drew God's mercy to them, else... Why would God single them out as the restart couple that you've talked about? Why would he choose them to produce a new spiritual race? Well, your thinking, like that of so many, is skewed if you're thinking that way. You're thinking of earning God's favor through good deeds. But of what we have seen, there are no good deeds. It says, God has declared there is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, verse 12. That's pretty universal, isn't it? Doesn't that paint a picture of helplessness and consequently of hopelessness? For all of us, from the standpoint of personal ingenuity and effort, none good, oh boy, not one. Doesn't that throw us, then, on the mercy of God? What's mercy? Jody Arias is the woman convicted of stabbing her husband 27 times and then shooting him in the head. She was duly convicted of first-degree murder, and now she is in court for the sentencing part of her trial to determine if she will get the death penalty or life imprisonment. What can she do? What can she do? She has been found guilty 
The evidence is overwhelming. She even admits to the crime. Her only recourse is to throw herself on the mercy of the court. Webster's Dictionary defines mercy this way. Mercy implies compassion that forbears punishment even when justice demands it. So what is he saying? Webster is saying, <clears throat> mercy steps in and decides not to implement justice in its severity in this case, but to mitigate it somewhat. And in the court cases, it's up to the judge. There is no coercion Miss Arius can apply. No bargaining chips. No pressure to bear. No. It's all out of her hands. And the judge and jury is not compelled by any stretch of the imagination to comply with her plea for mercy. Listen now to God's response in the great courthouse of his decisions concerning sinners who break his law. <clears throat> Here's what God says. Paul quoting, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, I'm still reading scripture, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, verse 15 and 16. What is this text saying? It is saying, God's going to do what God's going to do, and you and I have no say in the matter, nor can we do anything to influence God to pass a favorable sentence towards us. We shall just have to plead for mercy and pray for the best. But let me say this, if, if we have one thing in our favor, it is the confidence expressed by the prophet Daniel who said this, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. May I suggest that that would be a great refrigerator scripture verse to post on your refrigerator with your magnet. Here it is. Daniel 9 verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. What a message of hope. And we sinners need to hear that, don't we? We need to know that if we can't do anything to save ourselves, there is a God who is willing and able to save. Now that brings us then to God's choice of Abram and Sarai. <clears throat> now hang with me, this gets a little heavy. God was determined in this choice he was determined to break the chain of sinful progeny. Progeny is just another word for descendants. Sinners, if there's one thing true about the genealogies found in Scripture, it's this, that sinners produce sinners. 
No matter what genealogy you're reading, this is what is the truth. Even the righteous, so-called, produce sinners for babies. That's because we are born into sin. And if there is any righteousness, it becomes a reality after the fact. That is, after the physical birth, when in time, through the gospel call, repentance, and faith, sinners are born anew. Paul explains this as being found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Philippians 3 verse 9. And then he calls it the gift of righteousness in Romans 5 verse 17 that also comes through Jesus. So it isn't resident there. It's a gift. It's something that's going to come to you. It's going to be given to you. So here it is. If sinners beget sinners, if like produces like, and both Abram and Sarai are sinners, in this case even idolaters like Terah, Abram's father, how is it possible for God to break the chain of sinful progeny or descendants, sinners producing sinner babies, how's that going to happen? Genesis 11 verse 30 says, Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Let me ask a question. Does anyone know, not know, does anyone not know what it means to be barren for a woman? We all know what that means, don't we? So then why add she had no children? Sarah was barren, she had no children. Well, this double statement is to hammer home the point. This new couple from which God is bypassing the history of the nations will not have to fear that they will be responsible for producing a culture of idolaters and God-haters because Sarah can't have children. Her womb is reproductively dead. In our day, we have... Um, Fertility clinics that uh, women can go to or in vitro fertilization that's available to help barren couples conceive. But none of this was available to Abram and Sarah. Halfway through their marriage, we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Genesis 16, verse 1. Well, hello, light bulb. Two chapters later, we read Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Genesis 18, verse 11. Things are clicking along and nothing's happening. Paul in Romans makes a big deal about this when he says, without weakening in his faith, he, Abraham, faced the fact, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Romans 4, verse 19. Wow. You know, sometimes, brethren, God brings things into our lives which, at face value, are heartbreaking and painful. I mean, here was a couple who, as we shall see, 
in our next study was hanging on to God's promise. Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Yeah, well, there wasn't so much as one baby in the cradle. Where's this great nation? And the time came, as we just read, that humanly speaking, they were too old to have children. Their reproductive organs no longer functioned. But God broke the chain of sin, sinners begetting sinners. This new spiritual race with the new spiritual head, Abraham and Sarah, will not be responsible for continuing to produce wicked people. The chain of idolatry has been broken biologically in this new people. And that brings us to the next question. What about the child God promised? You will say, now wait a minute, Pastor, wait a minute. At the 11th hour, at the 11th hour, when these two elderly saints were past their prime to have children, God did activate Sarah's womb. He did rejuvenate Abraham's body so that the two of them, without any fertility clinic, were able to conceive and produce a child. His name was Isaac, and as good a man as Isaac became, he was a sinner, just like his mom and dad. All of this is very true. But Isaac, listen to me now, Isaac was not the promised seed. He was a symbol of the seed in that his birth resulted from a miraculous work of God, but he was not the promised seed. Listen to Paul explain the reality. And this is, brethren, where you must allow the New Testament to explain the old because the New Testament is the fullest revelation of what happened in the old. Here's what Paul writes. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, the world, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Did I read that right? Whoa, wait a minute, Paul. Shouldn't it be one person who is Isaac? No, it's one person who is Christ. Galatians 3.16. And the word seed here is the Greek word sperma, from which we get sperm, the life-generating seed that produces offspring. Jesus was that life-giving offspring, even more miraculously conceived by Mary, born without a sin nature, because God himself was the conceiving agent through the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Luke 1, verse 35. And the people that he produced consists of all believers who, like Abraham, believe God's promise, trust in God's promise, rely on it as the source of salvation. They don't go into idolatry. They come to faith in the living God. And so, what do we read in Galatians 3, verse 9? Here it is. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? That one made way back there 
in Genesis 12. Peter words it this way. And this, this text really opened up to me this week as I was studying this. Here's what Peter says. But you are, he's writing to his people, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, this is, see how this is different than the nations? He's not working with the nations. He's saying, God called you out. He made you his people. You're the chosen people. He goes on. It gets better. Once, you were not a people. Talking about the unbelieving culture. But now, you are the people of God. Once, you had not received mercy. <coughs> But now you have received mercy. That's what's going to take, you see, to become a person of God. So he says, my dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. What? What? We're aliens and strangers in the world? How's that? We're disenfranchised from the wicked. We're in a new people group. The Abraham and Sarah people group. The spiritual people group. I urge you as aliens and strangers of the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Among the pagans? You mean I'm not a pagan? Now the Amorite, Hittite, Canaanite. God left that all behind when he reached down and pulled up Abram and Sarah and said, here's my new restart for the race. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 12. What a wonderful wonderful concept God way back in Genesis restarted spiritual life and sinful humanity by bypassing the pagan nations and fixing his affections on Abram and Sarai and setting their feet on the path to a land a salvation based on promise based on promise. So I ask you this morning, are you on that path too? You can put the full weight of your life on the promise, on the say-so of God. Abraham did this, and, and he has indeed become a great nation. Like him, put your faith in the promise of salvation. Chapter 12, verse 3. All people on earth will be blessed through you, Abram. Yeah. Because the Savior comes through Abram's line. And Jesus is the universal Savior. I say it that way. John the Baptist put it this way. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John 1, verse 29. And Peter put it this way. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. Jesus is a must. He is a must for your life. If you want to be forgiven of your sin, you want to be shown mercy. It all started back here in Genesis 11. And God reached down and said, I'm through with the nations. I'm starting a new people group with Abraham and Sarah. And it's going to lead all the way to Jesus Christ and his descendants. And he's going to take them into the promised land. The true rest of God. Hebrews chapter 4. May the Lord find you on that path today. May he bring you into his family today if you're not there. If you're playing at church, may he bring you into real reality in Christ today. What a wonderful truth. And this whole study that we're going to do is going to be on how God matured Abraham's faith. Yeah, we're going to see his pitfalls and his sins and so forth, but we're going to see how he proved to be a man who walked by faith and one whom God says, that's my friend. That's my friend. We can be the friend of God as well through Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We pray that you will help us in this study to really grasp hold of some of these spiritual truths. Let the New Testament interpret the old for us so that we understand these things. Yes, the old has its uh, physicals. It has its symbols. It has its examples and all of those things. But the reality, as we've just been reading and studying, the reality is found in Jesus Christ and his redemption. Did the Old Testament have lamb sacrifices? Yeah, but then Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the, the symbolism finds its reality in Jesus. May we find it too in Christ's name. Amen. From the Brown Hymn.